Pulp Arcana, the vintage pulp paperback morgue. It left the Himalayas crazed with hunger. It trekked across the Asian wastes, making its way from Siberia to Alaska. Down the face of North America it came, 25 feet of not-quite-human animal, with a desperate craving for human flesh. Then at last, on a serene California mountain, at a lush ski resort, it found what it was after. Norman Bogner, best-selling author of 7th Avenue, takes his superb storytelling skills into the realm of icy terror in Snowman, 1978, a Dell book. They said such a creature could not exist. They were wrong. A novel of chilling horror by Norman Bogner. JBM from the Pulp Arcanum podcast for another Skull Session, this time focusing on Snowman 1978 by Norman Bogner. Today, my guest is Sean. We met from the Books of Horror Club. Welcome in. Hey, how are you? Happy to be here. Heck yeah. So he, he read this about a year ago, and I, I posted on there, and he was able to see my post, and he seemed to have liked it, too. So I said, hey, you want to come on to this discussion? We'll talk about this horror paperback. Good Yeti horror here. So um, we each got a copy. Is yours in your hand? Mine's in my hand. Yep, looking right at it. Okay, so this is Dell published this, first publishing in 1978. Um, the cover that we have is a footprint of the yeti and it's definitely in snow and it's a large footprint and it's spray painted as the snowman over it yeah they went with the spray paint font for reasons known only to themselves yeah highly questionable <laughs> totally um incongruent to the story yeah is my initial reaction the yeti began life on the streets of los angeles tagging his way through the <laughs> had to mark his territory the <laughs> big gigantic footprint wasn't enough i guess <laughs> so the tagline or the yeah the tagline on it says they said such a creature could not exist they were wrong ellipsis <laughs> it was pretty straightforward i'd say yeah um turning it around here when did you get your copy How did you know, you i out? i got mine uh you know from someone yeah you know, and then the books of horror group that was just like looking to give away you know just a whole bunch of stuff so it came as part of a lot 
And it's actually a little, you know, it's, it's half the fun of these books is, you know, you go through them and you see like, you know, what little personal notes that people have. So this one and another, you know, Bigfoot Sasquatch themed book, they both had a name inside, Charles Frost. And I was a little curious, like I asked, you know, the woman, you know, I, I just got to ask, who, who is this guy? And she asked the person that she got it from. And apparently it was like a. And she had a picture. It was a hunchback gentleman who I guess had never left a small town in, you know, somewhere in like rural Virginia, but he had a whole collection of books. And when he died, they just kind of got distributed amongst the small town. So clearly uh, Charlie was a Yeti man. Oh, wow. That's odd. He had great taste. Yeah. I get, he got the hunchback probably reading all those books. <laughs> yeah, I think he was like a he was like a local character, and you know when when he died, everyone knew who Charlie was. Oh yeah, he he probably had so much knowledge stored up in there. <laughs> yeah. So reading the back plot, we have uh, it says it left the Himalayas crazed with hunger. It trekked across the Asian waste, making its way from. Siberia to Alaska, down the face of North America it came, 25 feet of not-quite-human-animal with a desperate craving for human flesh. Then at last, on a serene California mountain, at a lush ski resort, it found what it was after. Norman Bogner, best-selling author of Seventh Avenue, takes his superb storytelling skills into the realm of icy terror in Snowman. It was kind of questionable that he went with the title Snowman. Why do you think he did that? You know, I got I got nothing for it. Because, like, you know, it's like the least evocative, you know, name associated with the thing you could have used. But he just leans into Snowman, like, throughout the whole book over, you know, Yeti, Abominable Snowman. Right. It's clearly Yeti. Yeah. And they, 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 they refer to it as the Yeti because he comes from the Himalayas. Yeah. We'll, we'll get from we'll, – and the prologue starts off in the Himalayas and stuff, not yeah. to get too far ahead of ourselves. But, but yeah, there, there's a lot of different titles. I mean, R.L. Stein even came out with a YA horror <laughs> called Snowman. Yeah. And, and that's not even a real snowman either. It's like this albino blonde-haired kid who turns out to be murderous, of course. <laughs> He wrote that in the heart of his Fear Street days, too, yeah. but it wasn't a Fear Street book. You know, it's funny. When you said R.L. Stein Snowman, I thought we were about to go to the Goosebumps classic, Abominable Snowman of Pasadena. Yeah, then there's that one, too. Yeah. And then there was the uh, Michael Fassbender movie from a few years ago. Ah, the Snowman. Yes. That was a great trailer, and they they made you think it was going to be a great thriller, which yeah. is actually based on a book I think from the late nineties yeah. or something. And and that was a, supposed to be a decent crime murder mystery, and they actually the best thing about that movie is they film it on location, like in Norway or something, like out in like you know the the, the frozen wilderness. Other than that, it, it was pretty much a dud. I don't know if you saw it. No, I mean, now you know I didn't see it, but I you know I heard about it. Everyone was, you know, like I guess it's like famously, you know, just not even complete. Like you know, things don't go together. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of European actors too so dealing with some actors where English isn't their first, isn't their forte or their first language. So, so that's another negative to it. 
But um, all right, back to this book. So it has a dollar ninety five retail price on it because this is the late seventies. Yeah. Um, it was printed in February nineteen seventy eight. Dell Publishing. Let's open it up here. My writing, there's someone that did like an asterisk with a pencil, and then there's GE in cursive. Yeah, it's, it's always cool when you see little things left behind like that. Like you gotta, you know, just like there was a person who had this before you. Yeah, it, it, uh, it really like, you know, exposes like the history and the flat yeah. form of it tells its history it's it's markings of that yeah i i always appreciate that for sure too i got mine recently it was a thrift book so you can still find it on thrift books online it's not that expensive or collectible um i got mine for five bucks and um this isn't even the cool cover because i think there was a a britain i don't know if it was a later publishing or if it was a british publishing but if you look up the images online it's a it's a great like Sasquatch like it looks like it's his yearbook photo. It's that close <laughs> <laughs> and detailed. It's glorious in in all of its hideosity. Have you seen that one? No, no, I've never seen that one. Yeah, you gotta look up that one. It's pretty good. It'll probably be the thumbnail for this podcast. All right, so next page, copyright 1978, Dell Publishing. For Robbie Wald and Baba Einstein, no, Eisenstein, for the pleasure of their friendship. Okay, so Norman Bogner, I, I wrote down a few notes of him. I did a little cursory research before this podcast. So he was born in 1935. He's a Brooklyn, New York guy, still alive to this day now that it's 2020. So he's going to be 85. At some point this year, I think. Oh, I wonder if he's still in Brooklyn. Um, no, I think he's in Southern California now. Yeah. He uh, apparently he's been active. He was a very studious guy. He went to several universities, including Alabama, Syracuse, and New York University. Um, after graduating, he moved to Europe, and and was even publishing over there. So, very studious, very learned guy, uh, cosmopolitan in all the sense, because he came back to North America by the 70s and and moved to Southern California. So, and he's written crime fiction, thrillers, family dramas, nothing nothing that you would necessarily associate with horror that I could find. <laughs> nothing to make you think, like, here's a guy who wants to do a killer yeti. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the book actually reminds me of uh, a 1977 movie called Snow Beast. I don't know if you ever heard of it. <laughs> no, but, not that one, but it sounds up my alley. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's, it's a very similar story. Once we get into this plot, like, I'll go over it, but it was written by the guy who did the screenplay for Psycho 1960, and it was a made-for-TV movie in 1977, a year before this came out, so oddly strange 
that they're very similar plot lines. So anyway, he, he grew up reading the dictionary and in the encyclopedia. This guy's up my alley. <laughs> I love my encyclopedias and lexicons. So, um, all right, we're going to get into the story now. As I open up, it goes the prologue. Um, let's see if it says prologue. Yeah, it does say prologue instead of chapter one. Okay, so here's the setting. Our prologue is set in the, up high in the Himalayas during a snowstorm. Um, as I, I'm going to kind of introduce the plots and the different chapters, and hopefully it'll spark memories for Sean as we go along here. Um, so it. Uh, has a Sherpa guide leading a guy named Bradford, who's kind of like a, a doctor slash expositionist. And they're, they're going up Everest. I, I don't quite remember their goal for going up there, but it's a whole crew of 19 people. And pretty soon, right in this prologue, the snowman tosses them down a ravine. And he actually ends up being saved by Tibetan monks. In, in their own little cave and they start going over these ritualistic chants into a deep sleep, sending him into a deep sleep. So all it really tells us in the prologue is that he was kind of saved, but the, but the snowman's out there but the, yeah. and, and it's kind of like the, uh, the Sherpa kind of worship. It's kind of more religious. Yeah, well, the big hook is that you know, is he had like a whole crew with him that the Yeti, you know, massacred. You know, he lost, uh, he lost all of his buddies. Yeah, exactly. So the the crew of nineteen died, and that kind of sets it up there. And then we jump forward about a decade or so. Apparently, this was like the late '60s, yeah. and then we go to our main setting, which is the Sierra Mountains in California at a ski resort uh tell us about the sierra mountains sean uh well you know i did live in california for a few years but i was mostly uh closer to the beaches but you know it's uh, you know listen it's that's what they say about california you can surf in the morning and ski in the afternoon and the sierras are where you wind up for the skiing it's you know it's beautiful it's snowy and that's it. You know, it's a place where you'd want to build a ski resort, and hopefully a Yeti doesn't come and uh, knock down your property values. <laughs> Which is kind of like a plot line in this as it goes along. Yeah. And the Sierras themselves stretch 400 miles. I, 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 ch- I checked the encyclopedia on the Sierra Mountains before this, too. So, yeah, geographically, if you're looking at this up above, um, California is kind of like a slice of crooked bacon. <laughs> and if you're looking at it that way, one side, the left side's the, the ocean. The Sierra Mountains are kind of like in the middle section on the right side, so the east coast of it, towards Nevada. That's why some of them, some of the Sierra Mountains um, encroach on the state of Nevada there. And um, it's also where Yosemite Valley is located in the Sierra Mountain Range, and which I have been to. My uncle lived in uh, Metro San Francisco, and we'd go out to uh, Yosemite, and 
I remember summer of 2003, we had kind of like a guy's trip where we uh, hiked about three miles. And it was like one of the miles, it was like up and up a mountain one mile and down the mountain. And it was just this serene, just ponds, everything just lush in nature. And it was like a 90 degree day on the hike there that day in august and then at night it snowed when we were (laughs) yeah Yeah, so exactly like you're saying the whole like you can surf during the day and then ski at night it's it was same day (laughs) the yosemite mountains yeah and the sierra mountains also hosts mount whitney which is the highest point in the contiguous united states I don't think it's necessarily the highest mountain peak, but it's the highest elevation point above sea level. So that's an interesting factoid. It also has the General Sherman tree, which is the largest in volume tree in the world. Um, And Lake Tahoe, which is the largest alpine lake in North America, is also in the Sierra Mountains. So, yeah, a lot of iconic vacation resorts. Yeah, rich, rich in national and tr- natural treasures, just not so many Yetis. Yeah, yeah, not too many histories of Yetis. I think there is a YouTube video like Sasquatch yeah. in the Sierra Mountains. Yeah, but it's it's clickbait, of course. Um, back to our story. So, visitors are gather- gathering at a ski resort in the Sierra Mountains. Um, so we're introduced to kind of our characters, what we think are going to be our characters. They're, uh, hosting this coronation for a family wet, a family wedding's going on. And there's also like the ice princess from California came up and they're hosting her for a ski weekend. It's just kind of like, um, a photo op moment of, so like, uh, a brochure opportunity kind of is what I get from what's going on. Yeah, I mean, early on you have like that Jaws vibe of, you know, this is this is the town where it's fun to go for the summer and everyone's – or the winter in this case, but. Yeah, and. Clearly yeah, that same kind of energy. And we are introduced to a huge hunk named Barry. He's a famous non-Olympic skier. I don't know how you could be famous, but not in the Olympics when you're a skier. <laughs> yeah, they, they find a way. He, he's like a local legend there, apparently. Like he's, but he missed qualifications for several Olympics. But hey, Lake Placid's right around the corner. So. We get introduced to them. That's chapter one. Snowman number two. Chapter two. I have... uh, Okay, so he gives a little background on our snowman and how he starts on the Himalayas and how he evolved. So it says that he mutated and adapted since pre-Neolithic man. He fed on dead whales and sharks in Antarctica. His hair is prickly like whiskers. 
His gray skin absorbs the ice. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, early on, he's, like, he's making this, like, a Yeti. On, it's not just, like, you know, like a 10-foot, you know, Yeti. It's, like, it's a super Yeti with, you know, claws and spikes and melts things with his feet somehow. It's, you know, like, we're, we're, we're going big. Yeah, good point. He's, he's definitely super predatory, <laughs> super vicious. Yeah. Is what he creates. It's it's not a Harry and the Hendersons situation here. So his food supply has come to a dearth on the Himalayan mountains. So he needs to seek out food because, like we were saying, he's super predatory and hunting is in his nature. So yeah. he goes on the pursuit. And it kind of like, sums up his journey like within a matter of sentences he's it's like even on the back book it's like yeah. oh he made it up through siberia and then then he crossed along on a glacier up to north america this dude was floating on a glacier <laughs> yeah the bogger's basically just like housekey right now it's just like listen i know the yeti's from the himalayas i want him in california we're, we're just gonna have him hitchhike down and then we're gonna move on like he's just like yeah he probably thought that way. was like ingenious he was like what if i take the yeti and just plop him in cali, cali. yeah <laughs> and you just picture him just like surfing on that glacier across north america it's just, yeah 20 foot yeti literally just circles the globe no one picks up on him it's like what did he fucking eat on on that glacier too and icebergs known are going at a fucking minuscule pace. You also hate snow for some reason. You know, he's a Yeti, oh, yeah. but snow is bad. Yeah, is that like a misprint or something? I'm like, what the hell? I, I, I don't know. I think he like thought it was like a, like he thought it was like maybe like a plot thing. The Yeti gets, you know, angry with the snow, but he, he lives in the snow. So I, like, I know, and he's adapted since pre pre-human <laughs> did not evolve for snow though uh but but isn't in his comfort zone in snow but yet he rides an iceberg over to some more snow <laughs> he's in cali which have like southern california is like the most ideal weather in the world <laughs> but yeah he hates snow i thought that was pretty odd too yeah um so at first, you're kind of thinking it's going to be, like, a little silly. I'm thinking, like, okay, Barry's a goofball. Yeah. We have this silly ice princess. We have a Sasquatch riding an iceberg, like a surfboard. And But Bogner is more of a serious guy. We went over his background and everything. Yeah. And if this was written probably in the late 80s, it would probably have been more corny. Yeah. If it was written for maybe a, a more exploitative publisher it would have been more corny yeah it's, it's got that like you know again like that late 70s kind of self-seriousness even when like a lot of what he lays down is on its face pretty ridiculous and i say that you know with great love as someone who loves this stuff but it's just like you know it, he treats it very serious but it's the 25 foot super yeti just <laughs> going after people which i appreciate him too Taking it serious and everything, because I, I took a s solemn approach to it. Um, it's winter here in Michigan, so it was snowing today, and um, 
I felt like doing a winter themed book. Yeah. Uh, I already read. I already read Christmas Babies around Christmas. I'm also in the middle of White Hell from the Executioner series. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a seasonal type of reader. <laughs> so so I, I'm in the winter vibe. So moving along here. Barry takes Janice, who's the Snow Queen. She's uh, they, they go up to the Great Northern... Uh, a trip down the slopes because he's basically the ski instructor there. This this gets him to mingle with all the different characters. There ends up being a snow blizzard kicks up and Barry kind of they kind of get separated from each other because Barry's like ends up like flirting with some other girl or something and he goes down the slopes with her to aid a distant skier is what I wrote down and yeah and the snowman makes his first appearance in California. He's grotesque with a barrel head, and he mauls Janice on the ski lift. Uh, do you remember this death? Yeah, I do. You know, it's you know, it's uh, it's a good one. You know, he really he really goes to town on her. You know, he dismembers her, takes you know an arm off, the head off. I mean, it's it's a it's a good solid kill, and then it's like the last one we get for a good while, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, you're right. Um. That's a, he doesn't go cheap. He's he's pretty graphic with the kills, so yeah. that's that's another great thing. He's a great writer. Uh, yeah, listen, it's it's good it's it's good quality stuff. You know he knows he knows what he's doing. Right, I think he could have been a little more in depth and kind of shrunk some of the characters and everything. Yeah. But uh, back then, a lot of these '70s novels they they were just meant to be 180 pages, 190 pages. Yeah, and a lot of stuff I have from that era, like you said, it's about, you know, about as thick as your finger. You know, just you, you get in there and you get out. Right, and it was a softer time, too. A little more, I mean, the movie's more more exploitative, but you know, the, the literature was a little more tamer. But, but definitely it was a graphic kill. She gets her head, like, torn off, and he's got super strength, and... It's key that it was on the ski lift because her death ends up being a mystery. Because obviously, since it's early on, they he needs to not have panic amongst the other characters. Yeah. Because it's the first death. Yeah, and so you get a, and then you get the, you get a good uh, corner scene, which I always appreciate. You know, when like a monster kills someone, and there's a corner like, gentlemen, I can't make heads or tails of this. The the victim was had her arm ripped off but there's no trace of claws or teeth and i i don't know what to tell you yeah they, they're like well there isn't any sign of like machinery cuts because yeah. they thought, thought she might have gotten gashed by the ski lift but she was hanging up in a tree too yeah um because he dragged her all the way up there i thought that was kind of peculiar it kind of reminded me of like Predator, how he takes those yeah. up the ceiling and hangs them like filleted fish. Um, oh yeah, he even uh, he even pours himself a drink. They they pour some Canadian whiskey, and the metal examiner is like, "Shit, man, her head is <laughs> torn off. Uh, no claw marks, no machine blade cuts, but and and but there's these black scar marks." 
You remember this? The description of, like, these black star marks? Yeah, which uh, never really came together for me, like, how the Yeti does that. Yeah, I couldn't comprehend it either. It's like his own branding. Yeah. It's like, okay, what's it coming from? Is that the shape of his claws? Yeah, I mean, there's, like, a couple weird things like that. There's the, the mysterious stars. There's, like, weird translucent crystals. And, like, it, his footprints are on fire for some reason. It's just... Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> I, I guess maybe he's got, like, thermal, thermal like, feet or something to... Yeah, I mean, Bogger throws out some weird details just to be, like, just to kind of, you know, gussy up the Super Yeti. Yeah, so that isn't really too much explained, but um, it's kind of his trademark because... As we go along here, it does come up one another time, but moving along here, the, uh, let me change pages now. I'm on to the next page. Drink your favorite beverage. Rip your favorite choice of smoke. Okay. Ashby. This guy, at this point, you don't know who our lead character is because every chapter is like a different character. <laughs> yeah. You know? I hate that in books when you can't buy into one character because because yeah. sometimes you'll buy into one character and you're like oh he just got killed on page <laughs> nine and I yeah. learned all his worthless background information I thought now I have to learn this character and invest <laughs> in this new one you're like okay and he isn't a very likable guy um, he's the writer for the ski resort and in the area um which was a more useful position back in the day. Yeah. And yeah, so they, yeah, they portray him like, you know, like he like he's the, the beating heart of the town. He talks about, you know, he's the guy that knows everything and, you know, elects the sheriff every year with a stroke of a pen. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he constructs the theme and the tone. And it's a ski resort town. It's kind of like, the ski resort, it's kind of like a corporation came in, put this high-tech ski lift in there, yeah. and apparently they own different land around the, the mountain, so they have different subdivisions in mind. So that's kind of what's going on. So it's kind of like, and now they have the snow princess come here and just ended up viciously killed, yeah. seriously too. So he's in a position... So basically, this character's put in a position where it's like, okay, well, if he puts a bad spin on this murder, then profits will go down. We can't close the ski resort. We'll lose a fortune. Yeah, you can't tell him it was a murder. Just tell him it was accidental. And it just kind of reminds you of, like, OCP Corporation from RoboCop series or something. And so he writes – so he does his own little research – and he found an AP Associated Press article from 1966 of Bradford's Everest expedition. So it comes back around to the prologue. Yeah, he's the one who puts two and two together and kind of gets our plot moving. Yeah, he's like, okay, it's kind of, I don't even see how, like, he made the connection that it was still this Yeti. But anyway, the, the article says 19 died and he was saved by Buddhist monks dwelling in a cave, worshiping the snowman. And, um, 
everyone thought he was crazy. They thought he might have killed the people. Obviously, his reputation is completely stained. Because he was leading these expeditions, and he was ahead of this expedition, and everyone ended up dead. It's kind of like the old, you know, captain goes down with the ship kind of thing. Like, if if the captain ends up surviving and the ship goes down, then that guy ain't going to be employed to sail any more ships ever again, you know? Yeah. Um... And what he finds in this article is that there's similar black star marks on Bradford. Yeah, again, the Super Yeti's, you know, serial killer trademark leaves a (laughs) black star on his victims. (laughs) And he was censured by the community for his tall tale, so no one believed him about the Yeti. So anyway, moving along here, Ashby ends up visiting, he ends up tracking down Bradford I don't know how, but I don't know how you looked up anyone back in those days, but <laughs> he's he's on an Indian reservation down in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I mean, I think he was still in the U.S. He was in, like, Arizona or something. But, you know, like you said, he's, listen, he's living amongst, you know, Indians, just kind of, you know, being a recluse. I think he, like, he finds, he has, like, a cult, right? Yeah, he's, since he's a pariah, now he he's... He's kind of like off the grid in this desert-like reserva- Indian reservation. And he's actually with the Pumba, I think they call him, right. which is the original Sherpa from the, the Mount Everest. Um, one of the ones who saved him. He, he's with them on the Indian resort. Yeah. But... Uh, He's a legend out there, and apparently they go, uh, he's a disciple of this guy, of a Yakwa shaman. That's what I wrote down. Okay. They take Mexican shrooms and hallucinate, chanting and dancing naked for days. All in the book. They they don't, thank God it's not real time. It's just, <laughs> it's just rumors that they go on, like, peyote binges yeah. in the nude. Uh, there's even an incident where the FBI, I don't know why they involved this, but the FBI entanglement over drugs being led, led like over their reservation. They're just trying to make him sound as crazy as possible. Yeah, that's, that's what they're doing. Uh, Um, so he's, but he didn't get. He never got arrested for it, but there's just even more cloud of suspicion. But yeah, because there's ended up being two missing FBI agents over the thing. So I don't know the FBI. I don't know why the FBI would get involved over their drug range. <laughs> he just casually maybe murdered two federal agents, but let's you know, let's just move on with him. Yeah. Uh, the FBI had nothing better to do back then. They they wouldn't get involved. In- drug raids nowadays on Indian reservations. Uh, kind of questionable. Anyway, um, Ashby, what's going on here is Ashby convinces him that the snowman has arrived in California and Bradford's kind of convinced pretty easily. Yeah. And 
he's got vengeance on his mind yeah. for how things went down. Yeah, no, it's, it's a classic plot structure in the best way. Like, you know, he's this, you know, this isolated outcast, you know, seeking revenge for, you know, his friends that were killed. Yeah, I love redemption stories. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it could have been built a little bit better, yeah. but classic revenge trope. But uh, then it cuts back to the snowman. We get a little update on him. He ends up. All he's doing is eating a Kodiak bear. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, if you remember, there was that Superman uh, script that Kevin Smith wrote. And, you know, like he tells the whole story of, you know, there's a section where Superman's dead and like nothing's happening. So, you know, the, the studio guy was like, we need some action here. Just uh, have Brainiac fight two bears, like Superman's guardian bears. So, you know, you know, Bogner just needed something, you know, to kind of keep the Yeti with us. So he, he fights two bears and he kills them. <laughs> yeah, he ends up munching on him, bones and all. Yeah. Like, so he's like a super badass. Just more, just more evidence of how, of, of how daunting this creature is. And, but yeah, he's elusive. Remember too. <laughs> yeah. A mystery. So, Ashby and Bradford. Bradford's like. Well, shit, I want to go, but no one's going to fund me because yeah. everyone thinks I'm a total asshole. <laughs> and then Ashby's like, well, you want to know what? You know what we could do? We could blackmail the big corporation who owns the ski resort, who I basically work for, and and, uh, and we could make them fund the expedition. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, he sets it up very antagonistic. But, you know, from, like, the corporate perspective, you know, they have this big property that they've invested in. And, you know, there's, like, something out there. So it's just you think they'd be amenable to, like, listen, just pay this dude. Have him kill your Yeti so you can go back to making money in your ski ski resort. Yeah. He – I mean, because Ashby threatens to write about the woman getting – he did write an article, but it was on the back page and it was small. Yeah. So he did expose it, but he didn't say his suspicions of the Yeti and everything. So he threatened to make it, you know. A bigger deal. Yeah. And so Bradford's like, we need a half a million dollars. He ends up he ends up getting the woman who works for the corporation down there to convince him. And they have like a little meeting and. So they give him the go-ahead. They're going to fund it. So now Bradford needs to round up his crew. I thought this was an interesting element. Yeah. Well, you know, just saying, like, I keep saying, but, like, you know, like, it's so – this book is just, like, so of its late 70s time. So, you know, he's got to round up, you know, Bradford's Raiders. And, like, of course, like, you know, two of them are just whacked-out Vietnam vets. Yeah, it's, it's very pulpy and it's very – men's adventure kind yeah. of like the phoenix force or something kind yeah. of so it turns into a men's adventure book for pretty much the rest of the book yeah he gets he gets the expendables together yeah it it's pretty cool it's kind of like your old 90s action movie um let me go over my notes here so it's a drunkard crew it's like <laughs> It's like yeah. you said, yeah, it's Vietnam ex Marines and a six foot five Indian. Yeah. Who wants to be a basketball player but 
has to settle for being on Bradford's crew. <laughs> yeah, he gets he gets one. I think he gets one of the Sherpas back. You know, who is living stateside now, part of his original Everest crew. Yeah, yeah, the wise men. So uh, they acquire assemblage of weaponry. Yeah, well, that that's a real highlight right there. You know, because. You know, they can't shoot guns or bombs on the mountain because there's going to be an avalanche. So they, they need a special weapon, and I will let you do the honors of what that special weapon is. Yeah, they, they argue for, like, pages. Like, Wagner really loved this moment, and um, they argue what will be more the most efficacious. And like you said, like, there's the threat of avalanches and... They they end up getting laser guns like GI Joe cartoon, don't they? No, no, they get they decide that they're going to use crossbows, but because it's a super yeti and you can't kill it with a regular arrow, they get plutonium arrows. So they're just like strolling around out there with nuclear warhead arrows <laughs> to kill the yeti. That's right, the fiery crossbows. Yeah. Wow, that's just glorious. Yeah. I mean, think about the glory of killing a Yeti, but being able to say you did it with fire bows. With a nuke arrow. <laughs> I I don't know how they think. Uh, I guess because they're like, the bullets won't penetrate his skin, and yeah. that's another reason why, too. So, so they convene at the ski slopes, and... Um, the, the guests are still skiing. They haven't even shut the place down. Yeah. Um, of course, the town sheriff's involved yeah. in, in a limited capacity. <laughs> Thank God he's not a total buffoon. I hate it when, like, the town sheriff takes over any genre, whether it be, you know, 70s, 80s horror movie or a crime novel where it's just the dumb town sheriff, you know? Not a fan of that trope. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, he, he starts to get involved and um Barry comes into play again. I missed him. Oh yeah, he was banging some chick when they in the beginning too, like when he left Janice on the slopes to get fucking <laughs> mauled. <Yeah. laughs> like they come to get him like and he's back in his quarters like banging another ski instructor yeah now they give him like a little character in the beginning and then we just don't hear about him for most of the book and then they bring him back when you're like hey my boy barry this would definitely be played by like think of like an owen wilson type yeah owen wilson and anaconda (laughs) owen wilson and anaconda (laughs) slash wedding crackers yeah with his sex grades um Another, let's see what I have right here. Bradford he ends up getting some tail. He hooks up with yeah, Kathy. yeah, Kathy who's there just to kind of fret about things and then have sex with Bradford. She has two jobs in this book. Yeah, they fall in love like real quick too. Yeah. Like she's well, worried about him. She senses his inner torment. You know, I mean, he's just so manly. He's like dripping of like. Yeah. Each sweat droplet is like a massive magnitude of yeah. manliness. She just couldn't help it. 
so he ends up hooking up with her the night before they go out and uh, Barry and Bradford actually fi- find comfort in each other that's what I wrote down they kind of get along for yeah they kind of bro out about like you know you screwed up and people died and now uh kind of sucks right bro and they're just uh, like, <laughs> yeah they're like hey we're both kind of like losers aren't we <laughs> we're both haunted by our failures right up top <laughs> So yeah, maybe you could help us out, Barry. So yeah, that was that was a weird connection. Yeah, and then he doesn't because like they bring him back and like he dies in five minutes. Yeah. So another one of Barry's students gets devoured by the snowman because <laughs> um, they're out again, and yeah. um, and avalanche ends up sweeping through the slopes, killing nine people. Yeah. How the hell was that started? Do you remember? I mean, I think it's like a combination Yeti slash Avalanche. Like the Yeti's yeah. in, like, in the mix doing this too. So like there's there's a Yeti attack and an Avalanche. They kind of they, they combine. Yeah, he had to have like stimulated it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> they even throw in like he's like fucking snacking on like a family of grizzly bears again yeah. too. Super Yeti strikes again. Oh, yeah. So we get to our climb now. The What it's all been building up to. Um, this is after the avalanche. So, yeah, they turned into a disaster flick. The avalanche just kills nine people, too. But <laughs> they're still going up there because they need to fight. They need to, they need to hunt them down. Um, so... I wrote, Garson the sheriff threatens to jail Bradford if he doesn't shoot a flare for the copter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Basically, the sheriff goes on a, a power trip where he's like, this ski resort's getting shut down because of the avalanche, and it's a danger zone. Yeah, trying to earn his keep, the sheriff. Yeah, and they send a... Sh- a, ch- a chopper to get them but you're kind of like okay isn't there more people like buried in the avalanche or so they're worried about him and um i don't even know if he even knows the story of the yeti yet i mean probably not you can't believe into the yeti until you see the yeti <laughs> i mean personally do you believe in sasquatch or yeti you know i mean i'm open to the idea like, you know, I mean, you haven't seen one, so you can't, like, really believe in it. But listen, the, could there be something, there. like, you know, yet unseen out there? Yeah, sure. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to consider the idea. Complete agnostic views on the Yeti. Yes, I'm a Yeti agnostic. <laughs> there could be a Yeti, but I just don't know if there's a Yeti. No, me too. Of course, I'm, I'm open. Hey, there might be the Jersey Devil. You know, Chupacabra. Uh, who, who's to scientifically rule out anything? Yeah. And um, so, but um, I don't know. There still isn't any evidence. And yeah. they've even had like a decade of like finding Bigfoot series on Discovery Channel. Yeah. I actually did Google ones. Like there are like, sasquatch tours you can go on like you know in certain you know wooded parts of the country like they are like 
you know, this date, we're going to go, a group of us are going to this woods to go look for Sasquatch. And if you want to come, just, you know, RSVP. <laughs> and that show's hilarious. They'll, like, go to the town and they'll go to the town hall and they'll be like, all the town hicks, like, will come to the town hall <laughs> and be like, I saw me and my son were out in our backyard, like we always are with our 22s, just looking for squirrels. And a big hairy dude had to have been more than seven foot. This ain't a bear. I, I grew up in the mountains and I know bears. And this ain't a bear. You're like, oh my God, just stop. Uh, but yeah, I still watch, you know. I'm, I'm open. So back to our story. So. They go up the mountain. Um, we're getting to our, our climax here, the, the final third of the book. So they they fear another avalanche, so they use their crossbows because they don't want to use a gun. Right. And why would you use a gun when you have nuclear arrows? Yeah. And, uh, so... So they're they're up there camping camping in tents and um, the snowman slashes his way. Oh yeah. wait, before they do that, Barry climbers find Barry's severed body <laughs> and his eye sockets are full of ice. Yeah. The amount we invested in Barry just to kill him and display his mangled corpse. R.I.P. Barry. Yeah. Barry had a lot of emotional trauma, did not get that loan to process it. He's gotta be like the Bodie Miller who didn't like live up to his talent. Barry's awesome. <laughs> let us all let's all raise a glass for Barry and his memory. And Kobe. Barry <laughs> Barry and Kobe, this is your day. Barry, Kobe. Oh, oh shit, Kobe, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, we're filming this on the day of Kobe's helicopter accident. Definitely one of the more shocking. Yeah, just, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, like, you know, you talk about the randomness in life and death, but, like, just, you know, no one woke up thinking today Kobe Bryant's going to get killed in a helicopter crash. Nope, it's one of those things you had to take a double take when you saw the article. Yeah. Scrolling, and, I mean, no one in the 2000s, no one tossed a crumpled up piece of paper into the trash bin without invoking Kobe's name before they did it. Yeah. Kobe. <laughs> um, yeah, to, truly one of the all-time greats. A day after Kobe, uh, LeBron James just passed his um, yeah. scoring mark, yeah. career scoring mark to move into third place. So eerie on that weekend and everything. So you got comments from LeBron talking about Kobe Saturday night, last night. And, yeah. then, and then his tragic death today. So um, digression over. Back back to Yeti Ice Closet. So, back to another great athlete lost before his time. Poor Barry. <laughs> another athlete lost before his time. Great. His death makes it seem like the the Yeti shot like ice out of his fingers or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, what the hell? Sure. The Yeti can do that. Super Yeti does whatever it feels like. Like the emperor, like shooting lightning. It's just ice yeah. fingers. Have you ever read any other 
Sasquatch or Yeti horror books? You know, not through my own, like, intent, but I, I've been on, like, a recent Yeti kick. Like, you know, there was this one. There was another one from my good friend uh, Charles Frost, you know, about, like, two guys. So, like, they're friends that go on a Bigfoot hunt together, but one of them wants to fuck the other one's wife, and he's planning to kill him on the trip to do it. Oh, and, man, that's dope. Yeah, and then there's another one where it's like, you know, whatever reason, people use the Bigfoot to examine, you know, human nature. So this one, there's a guide on this tour group looking for a Bigfoot, and the guide's like a, you know, a macho guy, but he's also, you know, a crazy psychopath. And there's a kid on this trip who becomes a man by losing his virginity with one of the women and then also killing the evil guide with his bare hands. And then last but last, but certainly not least is a book called monster, which is honestly all I can describe is it is 300 pages of the Bigfoot kidnaps a woman. And then it is just a long game of will they, or won't they of will this woman have sex with the Bigfoot? Spoiler alert, she does. Oh, man. I, I think I've heard of this one. Yeah. What what decade was that? This was 90s. It's called Monster by John Tiggs. And it's not like it's not like Bigfoot porn. Like It was marketed as like a horror book. But the entire time, there's just this weird tension of, I don't want to have sex with the Bigfoot. Do I? And then... <laughs> She does, and her she has a husband who's like you know not a bad guy, just like spending the whole book trying to find his wife. And then when he finds out that he essentially just got cuckolded by Bigfoot, he has a no bullshit mental breakdown, and ends the book in an insane asylum. <laughs> wow. So yes, the short answer is I have had a great deal of experience with the Bigfoot in the last year. Well, that's. You're the perfect person to have on Yeah. Listen, when you messaged me, it was just it was like it was like divine providence. Like, oh, someone wants me to talk about Yetis and Bigfoots and old pulp horror. I have a knowledge background now. It ended up being very fortuitous occasion. And John Teagues, that's the prolific horror writer who has some of the more memorable artwork releases who did a lot of leisure releases yeah no this was a leisure i mean i didn't know you know his whole calc i mean listen he's not a bad writer like you know like you are compelled to follow along to see what's going to happen with these this crazy lady and her bigfoot but it's just it's just such a weird narrative decision to go with yeah there's another one like similar plot to that where yeti rapes a woman yeah Yeah. i've seen so many um, uh, as far as books go, um, not too many were Sasquatch was the same main character. Yeah. I mean, I read Rocking Horse by William W. Johnstone. Uh, good old WWJ. He's a lunatic. Yeah. He's known for throwing every monster into the blender and chopping it up Southern comfort style. <laughs> and and that one has like the Bigfoot, the original Sasquatch, like a feral Sasquatch out in the woods, who just happens to be thrown in there because you know it's just an evil sphere of of in the South where 
you know, you got occultists and Bigfoot and uh, evilly possessed rocking horse. And so, yeah, he's in there for good measure. Um, but for movies, it's like I've there's Night of the Demon 1980. It's a good one where like Yeti's like got this pitchfork and he goes around like the Yeti has a pitchfork. Yeah, that's why it kind of falls into the slasher genre. It's right the golden age there. After the it's an eight foot gorilla monster, and he's got a farming implement. And throw some motorcycles in there for good measure, of course. Yeah. Um, one I really want to read is Call of the Wendigo. You ever heard of that one? No, I haven't. It's like the Sasquatch with elk horns. It's oh, the I, I know what Wendigo is. I just didn't know there was a, that particular book. And that's the cover, too. It's like a cartoonish Sasquatch with uh, the elk horns, and it's so badass. And it's 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 one where it's like it's it's pretty scarce on eBay and online. And when it does come around, it's 15 to 30 dollars for it. Um, I should have bought it like someone was selling like a jacked up copy of it around Christmas time for eleven ninety nine because it was a little jacked up. Yeah, that's not worth it. I uh, wanted to buy it. I know um, Grady Hendrix was reading it like last year and he posted a picture of it on Instagram. That's how I found out about it because it is rather obscure. Um, and then there's Snow Beast 1977, which I was talking about earlier. I'll talk about it now since I was talking about other yeah. genres of Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Um, so the guy who did the screenplay for Psycho wrote a made-for-TV movie called Snow Beast, and it is in public domain now. Um, you know the old lady from Mars Attacks? Yes. Yes. Who doesn't? And they're playing the her music, and it. I think it's my music. <laughs> yeah, this lady owns the ski resort in this movie, and. And she's totally senile at this point. This like the late seventies. It's hilarious. She's like playing a senile lady then. And um, every year they have a winter carnival at her ski resort. And this year it was the jubilee anniversary that winter. And of course, nothing could um, upset the festivities and interrupt these this these this anniversary of her winter carnival so we can't close down the ski resort it's the winter jubilee yeah it's so awesome so she's in it and she's in denial the whole time and they have a berry themselves where it's like this former like swedish like um nordic track skier who is a former olympian now he's washed up this is basically a lot of snowman all over again exactly and this came out a year before snowman and he's at the ski resort and he goes there and he's put in a position where he has to go out and find his love out there so he has to put on the skis again for the first time in a decade uh, there's, he, another, there's another classic uh you know setup yeah it's yeah. a great redemption so so he has to go out and grab her and he's with the the guy like uh, the guy who manages the ski resort and they have to hunt the snowman you got to see it it's in public domain so it's in a lot of the free like 50 pack of horror movies uh, if you own any of those you might already own it and not even um how extensive is 
your horror movie collection? You know, it used to be a lot more. You know, partially, you know, I've moved into streaming, and also it's just, you know, I got two kids under four, and, you know, I do my own writing, and I do my own reading, and just sadly, something I have to give in my free time, and a lot of it has been, you know, trying to track down more movies. Uh, I hear you with that. I can't even display my books or my movies. They're all in boxes at different places, you know, with, I got, like I was telling you before we recorded, like, about to be two kids under two, so I, I hear your pain. <laughs> You're really in it. <laughs> but, uh, so let's get back to Snowman and get to the climax here. They're camping out in tents. Remember, the crew's up there. Yeah. Town Sheriff's pissed off, but Bradford's determined to get his revenge. Um, uh, meanwhile, the main group is attacked by a Kodiak. And ba- Bradford disintegrates it. So, yeah, they go, you remember that? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I remember everything about the new arrows. Um, I think they're kind of like in different encampments, and and because uh, the snowman himself ends up, like I said, slashing into Packard's tent. Yeah. No, it's drawn out. Like, you know, the Yeti spends a little time, you know, like picking them off one by one as they're, you know, as they're trying to work their way up the mountain. And uh, I have to say, our author, he's pretty poetic with, I mean, he uses, at this point, he has used and uh, exasperated every synonym, every glacial (laughs) At this point, I mean, you hear every synonym for a mountain a hillock a whole (laughs) a snowflake (laughs) catabatic winds um gelid conditions uh he even uses the french word for a mountain which is eret a-r-e-t-e yeah uh that's actually uh that's the title of a book by uh i think his name is wilman golden it's like a Demonic possession slasher set on a, you know, an aret, you know, a mountain. And that's very, very, very good. Really? Really? Yeah. That's another one I got to check out. <coughs> Old whiteout killer, huh? <laughs> um, so, yeah, meanwhile, the main group is attacked by a Kodiak and Brad... So Bradford isn't there for the first encounter. So half his crew gets slashed off by the snowman. And then meanwhile, he's singeing a Kodiak bear. <laughs> Listen, he's showing off the nuke arrows. You got to establish what they do before you meet the snowman. Okay, there you go. Speaking of that, that seems kind of like hard to do, like completely disintegrate a Kodiak bear. <laughs> Practicality wise. Yeah. Like, just a ma- that's got to take a long time, like. They're plutonium arrows, man. Plutonium arrows. The power of these plutonium arrows. I don't get it. I mean, he calls them plutonium, but, like, he really describes them more like acid arrows. Because, you know, they just dissolve things. So it's like, you should just been like, oh, you know, glass arrowheads full of, you know, sulfuric acid or something you'll 
splash it on a thing and it'll it'll burn it. But just nope, plutonium. Yeah, I got kind of lost in the in the jargon of all the weaponry there when he was describing it. So yeah. I guess we're gonna have to add here to your recollections of what the weapon is. Yeah. Um. So here's an encounter. Kodiak and Snowman square off. Again. Oh, yeah, again. It's like Doc Savage shit right here. Um, oh, man, what's it called? The Polar Terror or something? Um, I, I read this last winter. It's a Doc Savage book where the cover is like this 10-foot polar bear, like Doc Savage is wrestling this 10-foot <laughs> polar bear. It's so awesome. And, and yeah, that's what this reminds me of. So the snowman crunches its teeth and decapitates the Kodiak. So yeah. another display of its brawn. Uh, yeah, snowman is undefeated against bears. <laughs> Snowman three bear zero. <laughs> the, the tussle breaks off a ledge of ice. I think the Kodiak falls down from this. Yeah, yeah. I have no Jamie plunges to his death. Okay, so Jamie the the giant Indian. This is how he dies. Yeah, the giant Indian's name is Jamie. Uh, another bizarre choice. <laughs> um, that's how he dies. He plunges to his death after a ledge of ice breaks off. Okay, so now we have Bradford Snipes. This is the showdown where Bradford encounters the snowman again. He snipes the snowman's arm with the bow and wounds it. Yeah. And they end up escaping inside a cave for the night. It's it's all really well written. Yeah. From here on out. The, yeah, I mean this is really like the payoff the whole book is building up to, and it it does pay off. I mean it's it's a you know it's an engaging sequence of you know them really trying to take out this super yeti with these you know with these crazy weapons, and you know that it's picking them off, and they get to hit hit back with the weapons. So it's it's a good sequence. Yeah, you're invested in it. Great action. I mean this is probably the best written book that I've read obviously because I read a lot of 70s and 80s trash so (laughs) not saying much but but it's it's pretty well written so so we're down to three people Bradford Pemba and Spider I think Spider's the ex-marine crazy Vietnam vet yeah one of our Nam guys the other one uh, got killed already so Spider wanders outside the cave, itching to be a hero with his flare gun. And this is where he stops taking orders from Bradford. and Because Bradford ordered them like, hey, we're not firing the flare gun. We're not having a copter come and get us um, until we get this Yeti. And at this point, Spider's already gotten paid. They each get paid $120,000, I think, right? I mean, some big number. Listen, enough to uh, do whatever they want to do with the rest of their lives. Yeah, so this is strictly mercenary uh, mind 
mentality from these men and and that and that mentality shows here because he doesn't even care about fulfilling his duty that he signed on for uh i think he thinks that he's gonna kill the the snowman and get the copter and he wants to be the hero is what they is what he was writing it for he ends up getting eaten by the snowman of course because this isn't his story yeah <laughs> drunk vietnam net that wasn't gonna get that praise yeah. this wasn't gonna happen so we're down to our last like 10 pages here we'll, we'll sum it up okay so Pemba, it's down to the shaman and bradford and they head for the summit because they're thinking about their escape now too and the only place to be seen is at the summit but they're in this cave with, with icicles hanging down and everything the snowman ends up monkey branching his way over to them yeah through the cliffside and uh bradford nails it nails its side with the arrow sending it crashing down with sheets of ice so we think it's dead at this point yeah however <laughs> however they are virtually trapped and their propel gear fell with the Yeti down the shaft. Meanwhile, the snowman is deep in an icy crypt of the glacier, wailing and cracking ice with his cries. He's alive. It's like Robocop did, like the metal dropped on him by the yeah. crane. And you know, he, you know, he's not going to be held down by that shit. Yeah. You know, at this point, like it's almost like the fact that they already shot him with like two nuke arrows and he's still not dead. It's almost like overstaying its own welcome. Yeah. Like you, at this point, you should be dead. You know, you've been hit this many times with these like crazy weapons, and you're just still going. It's like you, you ought to kind of. They should have done one less. Like, and they should have hit him once, and then I believe you know I'd be more open to like, okay, you got him the ones, but, you know, you got to double tap him to finish him. And uh, we're under the impression that this is the same exact Yeti that Bradford encountered a decade earlier, too. Yeah. If that, if the plot isn't outrageous enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. He wants revenge on the Yeti. But he has no family. It's like, where's the other Yetis? <laughs> He went out for a fucking pack of cigarettes and left them in the Himalayas. Like, what the hell? And, and it's like, is this the Yeti, like, from Neolithic times, too? Yeah. I mean, they make it sound like it's all the same Yeti. Like, it's just one very old Yeti who's just hanging around, hating snow, traveling on glaciers. Right, it's like, there's the Bigfoot and there's the Yeti. <laughs> there's just one. <laughs> like, and he never gets old. No babies, no yeah. females, no mama bear. Yeah. And yeah, so this is this is this, they make him monstrous for sure. Yeah. He's a horror character. Um, so he's coming back for more. He starts 
starts his way up again. Yeah. He climbs his way out of his icy grave. Um, it black blood horns. Oh yeah, he's got horns too yeah. coming out of his head. Yeah. Listen, they said such a creature could not exist. They were wrong. Dot dot dot. <laughs> there you. It, so now he, yeah, he's kind of got the look of a Jim Henson, that Jim Henson like Bigfoot character from Labyrinth with the horns. I don't remember that monster's name. But that's what kind of he looks like on the British cover or whatever cover that is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Bradford nails it with a crossbow in between the eyes. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the kill shot is a good one. You know, he hits it between the eyes with the nuclear arrowhead. <laughs> glorious and it falls again down the mountainside presumably for its final death and even though they have no flare gun and no mountain gear the helicopter comes to rescue them there is his redemption for the llamas Yep. There is no conclusion. Ashby kind of fades out of the story. Even I mean, everything kind of fades out of the story. Like the end is just, oh, they got him. He's he's coming back home. No. Uh, no. I was happy to close it out, but yeah, you always gotta have that epilogue. Yeah. You know, like it's such like a weird thing you see like sometimes in like these horror books where like they literally just like they resolve the problem. And then they just kind of end very abruptly. Like, it's just, up oh, helicopter, we're done. Yeah. Not even one last scare or anything, yeah. but, but they get saved. It's like, I mean, he's a tortured soul. He didn't have, like, his hug with Kathy. Kathy yeah. thinks he's dead the whole time, too. Like, yeah, there's everyone... no, like, epilogue where you kind of see, like, how he, what he does post- you know, Yeti revenge. Yeah, the last thing we hear from all of them is they're all worried because the avalanche happened and yeah. then a storm rolled in and so they were stuck overnight there. And, but so Ashby, even though it's seemed like he was going to be a central character, I thought he was going to go up in the mountain. Yeah. Listen, they introduced all these characters they set up to like do something with and then they just kind of don't. Yeah, then they interject um, the, the the squad. Yeah. I mean, there's no resolution. Yeah, there's no resolution for Ashby. No resolution with Kathy. You don't even like get a resolution on this uh, ski town that they sunk all this money into, and if that's gonna have to be you know written off in the next financial quarter. Yeah. It it kind of like introduced it with like the horror setup and horror characters aspects yeah. of normal people or having a jovial time. Yeah, and then it morphs into the final third is like the men's adventure magazine, yeah, or a Doc Savage pulp. So, um, I was definitely satisfied though. Uh, yeah. Overall thoughts and everything, like I said, pros above average. Um, they, they, uh, he strings together some 
poetic verse at times. Yeah, it's, um, it's well written. It's a good ride. And like, you know, as much as I was kind of poking fun at some of the more, you know, over the top aspects, I love all that stuff. It's just, you know, but part of loving it is recognizing like, okay, yeah, they're fighting the super Yeti with nuke arrows and it's ridiculous, yeah. but it, it's great. Just glow. Yeah. Just wonderful. And breeze to read. Like I read it within a few days. Yeah. Um, it, it keeps the pace up, you know, it doesn't divert too much into different backgrounds. So that makes it for a fun pulp read and easy to, uh, get a hold of. You could procure a copy, like I said, for around five bucks. And if you want some good classic Yeti horror, um, so definitely recommended by me. I, for, for the era, I'd say it's a B plus, A minus. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I don't have many other Yeti horrors to compare to, but comparatively, what echelon would it be at, Sean? You know, I would probably put it at the top, you know, out of out of the four we were discussing with, you know, Snowman and the Killer oh. Yeti. Uh, the other one where the two guys are, you know, basically trying to kill each other over a woman while they look for the Bigfoot. The one where the woman has sex with the Bigfoot. And then the one where the young man becomes a grown man while searching for the Bigfoot. I mean, it's, it's probably the best writing. It's got the best forward momentum like the other like it's a again like you see like these weird similarities in all these bigfoot books and a lot of them move very slowly because it's just a lot of people walking through the woods looking for a bigfoot dealing with their weird human dramas so and i think it's the best of all the ones that i've had and most important of all nobody has sex with the bigfoot so that is just a plus right there yeah um, yeah, I like how there's a distinction. It's like, he's the monster. They don't, yeah. it, he doesn't try to get too philosophical yeah. with the humanity of the character. So he isn't too pretentious in that. He just yeah. set out to pretty straightforward yeah. romp. Yeah, it's like the Bigfoot is close enough to a person and all these writers are just like, we need to stop and examine what makes us human and what makes the Bigfoot like us it's like no 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 just you, you got the you got the crazy ape monster let's just let's have a party here yeah so he cut cut out that pretentiousness yeah. um, so definitely definitely highly recommended um i want to thank you for joining me for this skull session on this book and in the future i definitely want to have you back on the paul Barconum podcast to talk about your book collection and everything i know at this point it's like a sunday night and we've been talking yeah. for over an hour yeah, listen so, obviously, obviously we had a good time because we just kept going yeah it was definitely enjoyable and hopefully we could review more books in the future um and talk about your collection and stuff and yeah, listen i'll hop back on anytime happy uh listen this was fun and happy to be here happy to come back if you ever want to track down monster by john tiggs we'll talk about you know just giant bigfoots and the women who maybe want to have sex with them <laughs> there you go definitely definitely sounds like a date <laughs> just not with a bigfoot <laughs> all right we are out. Thank you. Okay.
for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Till next time, folks. All right, this is JBM from the Paul Barconum podcast. We have a guest today named Eric from the state of Washington, right? Yes. And he's a huge pulp aficionado and bookworm. So this should be fun learning some different things on this discussion here. So let's talk about your collection. Tell me about your pulp collection. Well, it's, I've been. I started collecting the digests a little bit back in the uh, 90s. And then once I finally started finding some of the original pulps, um, I started getting a lot more of them. Sorry about the ums. I'll improve in a second. Um, it's, I think, my first pulp I got back in the 90s. It was a issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries with a great uh, Virgil Finlay cover. Were you going after the sci-fi stories? Um, honestly, that one, it was, oh, hey, a pulp. I don't think I've ever seen an actual one for sale before when I hid it in a bookstore. And it's, they had several science fiction, so I picked one with a neat cover. It was only a couple bucks, I think, at the time. So, so uh, what are some of your favorite genres to read? I lean heavily towards um, science fiction and fantasy, but certainly not completely. It's um, I read too much to read any one thing all the time. It gets boring. Yeah, I like to hop around to different genres, too, whether it be swords and sorcery or horror or fantasy. Yeah. It's um, a lot of my... A lot of my early picking up of pulps was trying to find certain authors where it was just hard to find collections, maybe. Um, I know one of the first uh, authors I started looking for pulps was um, H. Beam Piper, the science fiction writer. Uh, back then, all of his collections of books were out of print, and it was hard to find the stories. But it's, there was a store that had a bunch of the old um, astounding and analog digest. So that's why I started really uh, starting to get into collecting them. What era is that? Is that the 30s? Um, no, he was more mid 40s to early 60s. He yeah. unfortunately killed himself back in the early 60s. So otherwise, we might have had several more years of good stuff from him. Wow, just like Robert E. Howard. Eh, well, well, mm. Piper was in his uh, 60s when he did that, but yeah, not a dissimilar. So. And it's, it seems like a lot of these pulp writers lived a hard life, whether it be with the booze and, and short lives. You hear about it being tough in the impoverished era. Yeah, it's... If you could turn out the stories you could make some decent money for the time that's for sure but you had to be one of those absolute just crank it out story after story after story so yeah 
was it um harder to find the pulps back in the 80s and 90s or were they it's i almost more prevalent and cheaper i would say you could find the digests fairly easy back then the actual pulp magazines i almost never saw yeah yeah so i i hardly run into them when book hunting either um tell me about the store that you work work at occasionally it's in kent washington right yeah it's as wayne says on his card of the nerds by the nerds for the nerds so it's a great uh place it's has a decent selection of pulps although i've gone through them with a buzz saw so he's got a bit less right now (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. yeah he's he's really pretty deep on the digests pulps are just they almost never show up around here although i think they've been a little more common the past few years not a lot necessarily but a little yeah you can't really find them unless you go to the conventions or online it's, then they're exorbitant amounts I think less so than they used to be online, though. If you just are willing to keep, you got to keep looking. You got to just don't go. The trick is to look for auctions. Yeah. It's, um, I honestly think the past, say, maybe 10 years or so ago, this is almost horrible to say. I think a lot of the earlier collectors started dying off. So, a fair number of a bit of the material made it to market and some of that is still out there so um but i know at least some comic book collectors are starting to look at pulps as a cheaper alternative to the exorbitant price of golden age books so some of this stuff especially the classic covers is really jumping again yeah um me and you talked a little bit about your collection before I started recording, but bring up uh, the extent of it again. Um, I think I've only got about maybe 400, 500 actual pulps, maybe that many digests. Um, and then, of course, I have other books. I have maybe 20,000 comic books and several thousand book wow. books. It's, I still have stuff from as far back when I was seven, so over 40 years of accumulation. Would you say you're a good curator of them? Yes. The catch being, um, of course, my earliest books, which I had when I was a kid, I didn't know any better. Some of those very earliest books I have are pretty dumped on, but I treasure still having them. Yeah, um, it's no, it's I take I take very good care of my books. But the thing is, I'm not going to not read a book if I spend good money on it. I may only read it once and then it stays in the plastic until something happens. But I'm going to read a book at least once if I spend a hundred bucks on it or more. Oh, really? You're not just a collector. You're a pure reader of them, too. It's Yes, I'm not saying I've read everything. Um, 
I think the classic saying is if somebody asks you if you've read every book on your shelf, the response is, why would I want books only filled with stuff I've already read? I want new stuff available when I want something. Right, but, right. Um, it's I try. Um, no, I feel like it's a book is meant to be read. Yeah. On the other like hand, some of those pulps are so delicate nowadays that they're just yeah. flaking and yeah. almost it's, can't be read. Well, that's true. I've got at least a couple like that. Um, I think there's only one or two where I've gone, I can't even read this once. I need to find something else. But it's most of them it's I can get through at least one time. And some yeah, of them are reading the editor's section on some of those or, or the fan letters. Yes. Or let you dip into the era and, and get a sense of the zeitgeist and stuff. Yeah. It's, I actually have a couple of the astounding science fiction published right after um, Pearl Harbor. Wow. So it, he mentions in the editorial, uh, John Campbell, the editor, just mentions how certain writers like Heinlein and Hubbard are going to work for the uh, government or doing war-related stuff already. So all they'll have is uh, stuff that's left over from before that until after the war. Wow. That, that's interesting right there. Yeah. Yeah. What about magazines? You collect any of the uh, stuff like famous monsters from Filmland, or um, I have a two or three issues, mostly just as a sample. Um, I've got some of the other Warren magazines. I just got a very beat up copy of the first issue of Creepy, for example, a couple months ago. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I have a few of those and a, and a few dozen of the eerie, the eerie ones or cousin eerie ones are a little yeah. more easy to attain. Yeah, it's and I've also the the two Warren magazines I've got complete runs on are two of the most obscure ones. I've got the complete run of the spirit they did in the 70s and I've got a full run of help, which actually came out most slow started shortly before um, Creepy and Eerie. It was like 1960 or 61 when it started. That one was uh, edited by Harvey Kurtzman, the guy who uh, created Mad Magazine. It's what he did after he left uh, Mad. Stuff. Yeah, the, the lettering is kind of similar, how they're really huge and blocked up. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw some of those recently online. I haven't gotten any yet, but what what's the material like in those help magazines? Is that just kind of another kind of little spinoff of Creepy and Eerie? Well, no, well, no it was actually, it predates uh, like a Creepy and Eerie. It's much more, it starts kind of with the humor from Mad Magazine or what Kurtzman was developing into um, but then he starts also doing some other stuff. He actually got some of the early underground cartoonists uh, actually did some of their earliest stuff for help before the underground uh, 
comics ever really started to exist. Oh, oh I see. So, so. so is it like some satirical type of stuff? Almost yeah. entirely, yeah. Uh, so so the, hi- the help exclamation point is kind of hyperbolic then. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty weird. It's I mean, it's one of those where it's it never was quite as good as the actual Mads, um, but it was pretty fun in its own way. So, and Let's it's just talk inter- about your origins. Then, how did you get into this stuff when you were young? Well, when I was about eight, um, my dad worked for Boeing, and we uh, moved to Germany for a few years for his job. So, at what would at kind of at a key age, I didn't have any television to watch, or almost none. I still know at 4.40 in the afternoon, Tuesday, they did 25 minutes of American cartoons, and I would watch that religiously. Um, but it's I didn't have the television or other stuff to get into, so I just got deeply into books. And my dad would hand me some of the science fiction then. To some degree, I was already a fan of that stuff. I loved the Oz books even when I was younger. So, Did the base just get huge shipments of different digests okay. and stuff? Um, not so much. Um, what we would get was there were some English language bookstores uh-huh. in Munich. So um, we would my dad would pick them up or people from the U.S. would literally just fill in boxes of stuff and send them over, just random books for us to read. Just right, military whatever. donations. Yeah, it's my dad was actually was with Boeing, not the military. Oh, okay. But it's, so I was not on base, which kind of limited some of my options. We did not get the uh, Armed Forces Network. But we had friends who lived on base, so there was definitely some crossover of stuff there. So it's, I was just, I was reading The Lord of the Rings in the fourth grade, so. And I never Uh, really looked back. (laughs) Nice. Um, What kind of comics you got? You got a lot of Silver Age and Bronze Age or old age? Um, I've got stuff all the way back to Platinum Age. My oldest comic is from 1936, I believe. So, wow. Funnies number three. Um, you got some of the earlier Batman and action comics, too? Um, my earliest issue of action is number 50. And I think my next one is like 140-something. And after that, I don't have anything till the late 200s. But I got a couple of early examples. Um, I think my earliest detective is 106. So, what what kind of comics were you into generally? Uh, the first one I really started reading uh, when I was a kid that I still have was the uh, Star Wars comic. Oh, really, the, the Marvel? One. Yeah, the Marvel Star Wars, or at least that's the one I first have. I know I read when I was even younger. I read some Spider-Man stuff. I read several of the, uh, I know I read at least occasionally Spidey Super Stories, which was the Electric Company tie-in Spider-Man 
series, which was fun. And then when I was in Germany, um, we got occasional care shipments, like I said, from the U.S. Um, I vividly remember getting one of the Shazam 100-page giants from the 70s, which would have been several years old even then. And me and my sister read that into oblivion. So fun. Um, and I also read some of the German comics. Uh, I remember reading their Mickey Mouse comic regularly. Probably taught me more German than any of the actual classes. So, Yeah, some of those Disney comics, maybe. I mean, the, there's not too much lettering, so yeah. Yeah, might it be able was, to catch on to some of the German expressions. Oh yeah, it. Yeah, it's. I mean, I had just enough classes that be, it mixed together, and I was able to get it where I could actually learn more reading them. Was Don't the have. Star Wars the movie adaptation? Yeah, and then they were doing original stories as well, which were about follow on to that. Did you follow on to that series as it was being released? Uh, yeah. it's Back then, its comics would get released in these uh, three-packs at the drugstore. Early, uh, sometimes reprints, sometimes just earlier issues they printed and collected. So I was able to get most of the Star Wars back issues, despite the fact they didn't start to like issue 21 or so. Oh, nice. Never could find issues 19 and 20 until several years later. And then it's one year for either my birthday or Christmas. That was when they were starting to get the uh, stores. So there was an ad in some other comic we had gotten somewhere, which had the Mile High Comics used comic ad. And my parents actually ordered me most of the Star Wars issues I had missed back then. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was. So it's, and I still have almost all of those. A couple of them got lost somewhere in transit. I never did figure out why I had so much trouble keeping my hands on 28. But I lost that. I'm on my third copy. I lost that twice for some weird reason. (laughs) Yeah, it was an underrated series. It was it was like the first tapping into the expanded universe. Yeah. Um I I, lo- I loved them um cuz Dark Horse got the Star Wars license and they did their whole omnibus and and they would reprint them all like 20 in one book or whatever and and uh so yeah, I've read most of those too. So I definitely love Loved reading those. Yeah, it's I've only I haven't read all that much of the Dark Horse stuff. I've read chunks of it, but they had so many books at once I can't keep track of everything now. Oh well I'm, I'm and then, they, they still had the license to print the old oh, yeah. Marvel ones, so I, they printed the Marvel ones in omnibuses. Yeah. So we read yeah. those. How do you have your books displayed? Well, a lot of them are in a storage unit. Um, it's I have I can several. So having twenty thousand comics yeah. and such. It's um, 
I don't necessarily have a lot of them on display. I mean, I have a nice bookshelf that has uh, some of the more noteworthy stuff, like my um, collection of Oz books is in a nice shelf, but it's just, a lot of them are just, I know where they are. And do, you have and some, do you have some of the first printings of the Frank L. Baum ones in the tens and twenties? I do not have any of the Oz books first printings. I've got a very nice second state of uh, the fourth book, Dorothy and the Wizard and Oz. Only way you can tell that from a first is there's two more books on the list of titles list. So, And then it's I've got a first edition of Queen Zixie of Ix. But... Yeah, because uh, Frank Elbaum wrote like 26 books or something in that series. Yeah. <laughs> Wizard yeah, of Oz was the first, then he just kept on releasing them. Yeah. Similar to Conan Doyle. He wanted to get out of it, but the fans wouldn't let him, so. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you ever read uh, Conan? Um, I've read, I'm not a super big fan of the non-Howard stuff. I've read most of the Howard stuff. I even have, I want to say, four issues of Weird Tales with the original Conan stories. Oh, nice. And then it's, I've also got three, um, there were three other stories which were printed in digests in the 50s, leftover. I've got those as well. Yeah. What are, what are some of your more expensive books in your collection? Um, well, specifically on the pulps, um, I've got the first, uh, I've got an, I'm only missing about 10 issues for a complete run of Operator 5. Um, the first issue of that, which is I have in decent shape, is um, was one of the more expensive ones I got, but it's nice to have. Um, I cannot believe I got this for the price I got it. It's The spine is missing and replaced with tape, but it's otherwise pretty nice and uh, presents well. I have the uh, August 28, I think it's August 28, um, Amazing Stories with the first Buck Rogers story. Nice. I have um, all four issues of Astounding uh, with the Lovecraft stories. I've got all three parts of At the Mountains of Madness and the one with Shadow Out of Time. Those were, I think, a couple hundred each when I got the first issues, the ones with the covers. And yeah, then those are like, always coveted. Yeah, and then I've got a few. Then I've got like about a dozen uh, weird tales with uh, the Margaret Brundage covers. So a couple of those were, especially if you get Lovecraft or Howard in the book as well, those are not cheap. A hundred to two hundred bucks, but compared to comics, that's it's not nothing, but it's not a lot. 
are you a pure collector or do you trade off some of yours or sell some of yours at times? I should sell off some more of my stuff. I have too much. I am. <laughs> I guess the real answer is on a lot of the stuff. I'm not adverse to trading it or selling it. I just have no particular interest in going out and looking for a buyer. So there's been a couple cases where somebody says, um, let me, uh, I show something on like, say the forums at for a CGC or something. And somebody says, what do you want for that? And I'll work something out, but. Yeah. Buying's a lot easier. And they say selling is like constipation. Yeah. At some point, I'll let it some of my stuff go, but I don't know when. Um, that said, one thing I am willing to do is um, there's a lot of the comic books have fallen into the public domain. They just were never copyright renewed. Right, so, all the pre like 1955 or yeah. I mean, much. the I mean, obviously Marvel and DC and the Disney stuff is all copyrighted but a lot i have a lot of the public domain stuff where i've scanned that and shared it online so if you've ever heard of the digital comic museum uh, they have a lot of stuff there yeah um i don't know if that's the one i visit but there is there is one where they do all the golden age ones or what yeah. people have contributed over the years and now the yeah. website's almost 15 years old and and just dozens and dozens of even the boxing ones, Western, romance, horror. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, there's some some there's some good stuff, even in the less popular stuff. Uh, you've got people like Frank Fazetta or Matt Baker on the romance books. I have no particular desire to read them, but I can look at the art for hours it's just gorgeous yeah some of the stories in some of those anthologies are more riveting than movies you see nowadays yeah so it's uh, that's one of the things i love about picking up the old pulps it's you just i mean you're obviously you're excited because oh wow this has part one of red nail by robert e howard that's awesome you go through and look at the other stuff in there by authors you've never heard of or and you're just going oh this is cool there's a lot of stuff in the old magazines the famous stuff has been reprinted but a lot of the other stuff just never is nobody's ever seen it again and sometimes mm -hmm. there's some good stuff in there yeah and sometimes there's just garbage of course there's always sturgeon's law 90 percent of everything is crap but <laughs> What do you ever? What do you think about novelizations? It's that depends on. Were you ever into them? Um, back in the day, yeah. Especially like, it's hard to remember. There was a point when you now that you can actually get uh, DVDs or streaming or whatever and watch a movie at any point. It's not nearly as important. But, I mean, for years, the only way you could relive Star Wars, say, is to read the book or the comic. So it was the only home version you had. 
and there's and, some, and there's still a lot of lost stuff where that's the only thing that there is left. I don't know if you've ever watched a Doctor Who. There's like almost a hundred episodes of that are still missing. They weren't saved. And so it's for some of them, it's one of the only good ways to find out what the story was, was the novelization. Yeah, they used to novelize everything back in the 70s and 80s and yeah. up into the 90s before yeah. the Internet. And you could see that there was probably definitely a market for it. I mean, well, you still get them occasionally. I didn't pick it up, but it's they did the uh, they released the novelization of uh, the uh, first of the new Star Wars trilogy, The Force Awakens. By Alan Dean Foster. Yeah. And And when I saw that, I laughed myself sick because, of course, it's well known. He did the actual Star Wars novelization. It was just ghostwritten for Luke by under Lucas's name. So, yeah, it's brilliant novelization. I read it a few years ago. The guy's immensely talented. I read several of his alien ones. He also came back and did Alien Resurrection or I mean, uh, Alien covenant in 2017 the sequel to prometheus and um so yeah i've been a huge novelization fan because usually they're working off an earlier draft and they they can afford whereas some of these movies got the scenes got deleted it's still included in the book kind of like the horseback riding scene from batman 1989 uh, with Vicky Vale, and yeah. so yeah, I've been a fan of novelizations. It's I've not, like I said, I haven't read as many recently, but I was definitely fond of them in the day. It's, yeah, the horror ones just keep going up in value. A few years ago, Season of the Witch Halloween was ten, fifteen bucks. Mm-hmm. Now everyone knows about them more and more and now it's like $50 book and they are the original Halloween 1978 was uh, by Curtis Richards and that's a hundred dollar book it's always been a hundred dollar book the past 10 years online yeah well like I said you just keep looking you that's the thing it's you look for old books you just keep looking you don't know what you're going to find and where well since you're on that topic tell me about the stores you shop at or how you acquire books over the years and your hunting methods well it's unfortunately it seems like there's less good used bookstores anymore um for years and years it's there were at least in this area there were at least half a dozen first-rate used bookstores um there's still several but they're more like chain bookstores like half price books um but i mean there were a couple places there were two or three branches of a small thing called book world here which Mm -hmm. had paperbacks and is that store's franchise still open no it's gone like i said it's the best books I'm right sitting in the best bookstore I know of right now. So, 
excellent it's, place to be. It is. Oh yeah, it's like I said, this place is just great. But it's like tell I said, us about the, the store. Well, like Page Turner Bookstore is yeah. what it's called. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's it's just like I said, it's fun. It's the one of the very few stores I've ever seen that, like I said, has pulp stocked in any meaningful amount. He's got a ton of science fiction and old paperbacks. Not my personal thing. He's got a large selection of, of toys. I had at least one friend at work who was sort of like, you mean I can actually get Star Wars figures somewhere? Where is this place? <laughs> it's, wow. um, yeah, he doesn't advertise those on, on his Instagram. I'll tell him he should start. It's like I said, I'm looking at several right now from where I'm sitting. It's, and it's, I had, I literally have had people complain, you can't find this stuff. And it's sort of like, try here. It is, and it's just a constant turnover of stuff. So it's, I mean, yeah, one of the, it's like he's even got some uh, G.I. Joe comics from the 80s and yeah. incredible. Yeah I, just, Hulk. yeah. I actually just picked up from him a few days ago. Um, beat up but it's super hard to find the treasury edition gi joe um it's about double the size of a normal comic those are always fun and you never find them so was that the it's like a collection of the marvel comics it was actually just a reprint of the first issue but it was printed double size of a normal comic oh so it's like 14 inches by 12, or not quite that big, but... You remember the huge, oversized, like, DC ones or Marvel ones that they'd do that were, like, really large books? I forget what they'd call them, but... Treasury editions. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, is that what the, you're talking about? Yeah. yeah the G.I. Joe one was one of the last ones they did. So, it's, I have... That makes sense, because they used to do the ones back in the 70s and 80s of Batman. I have one with Ra's al Ghul special. I have, I actually have that one, too. <laughs> I have I have pretty much all of the DC ones. I've only got about half the Does, Marvel Doesn't ones. Robin die in that one? It's got the cover that it looks like he does. <laughs> then again, I've got the... Uh, I've actually got the originals of those stories as well. So, I several years ago I finally just before it went from expensive to crazy expensive, I got like the uh, the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul and the uh, Joker's Highway oh Revenge. So I made a snowman earlier. I'm sitting in my car and it just tipped over. <laughs> <laughs> he just completely crumbled his head just smashed the wind's picking up here i'm in michigan oh wow we just had a snowstorm last night and i rolled up a snowman this is hilarious fun it's we had a little snow here nothing you would consider meaningful if you're out there but we're, we get stupid with snow here we're not used to it no matter how often we get it so yeah you guys mostly get the misty rain it's not often too much in the early 30s temperature wise yeah. well, to hit the snow 
Yeah, we get it more than people think, but that's there's still some years when we don't see Annie at all. Are you closer to Washington or what's the nearest big city? Oh, um, we're, I'm in Kent. It's right now. We're about halfway between Seattle and Tacoma. So, is that is. along the coastline too? Um, no, it's it's along Puget Sound. So. Uh-huh. Washington kind of has a huge Olympic Peninsula, and then there's a chunk of water coming down that separates the peninsula from the state, which, among other things, it makes it literally, this is the hardest place on the face of the planet to forecast snow correctly, just because of the way it comes around the mountains on the peninsula. They can predict other weather, but snow, they got no clue. Mm. Uh, I've always wanted to visit up there. It's it's gorgeous. It is. I love. I can't imagine living anywhere else just because I wouldn't be able to stand not seeing the mountains. So Mount Rainier is just beautiful. Yeah, when I see mountains, it's almost like surreal whenever I visit different places because in Michigan there are none. So. But um, um, I guess in closing here, uh, any other topics you wanted to bring up? Um, not a lot. It's like I said, this is, well, I may not have said it to you. I've said it elsewhere. This is a great time to start looking for pulps right now, um, especially online. Um, just either... I use eBay a lot or ABE books. There's just a lot, like I said, a lot of collections have come out in the past few years. You're going to find it harder finding the really famous stuff. I mean, the Margaret Brundage Weird Tales covers or super famous stories. But it's, you can just, there's a lot more stuff out there on the market than there was when I was younger. And you can, there's more access to the internet. More, there's more pulps out there now even than back in 2009 or something? Maybe around 2009 was when it started. Certainly a ton more than when I was look when I started looking at, say, the 90s. Like I said, back then I never saw them. Yeah, um, that was the dark but, ages. Yeah, but it's... And the fact that you can get online and look for them, there's... Or there's some stores that have them, like here, but it's there's just a lot more availability to at least get your toe in the water and start going, oh, so this is what this is about. So. Yeah, mine only, I don't have any from back in the 20s or 30s yet. I only have some, like, amazing stories or amazing, fantastic stories from, like, yeah. the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. I've got a... Like I said, it's I've gotten some. I don't have a lot from the twenties. Um, mostly what I have there, other than a couple of amazing stories. I mentioned the I have the Buck Rogers one. I've also got the one issue of Amazing Stories with a Lovecraft story. Um, that's from 1927, The Color Out of Space. Um, I've got a bunch of Argosies. Um, which are the problem with that is it's the serials 
So you're getting parts of some stories, but you got like some Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Tarzan even, in some of those. Oh, they're so not like for some of the more obscure stories, you can't read the next one. Yeah, but it's, you can sort of say, hey, I actually have part of a Tarzan story. You pick up, or a John Carter story. You pick up the book, you read up to the point where the pulp picks up. Then you can go read the one story you got in the pulp. And you can at least see the illustrations and go, hey, I have where this originally came out. So, <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, man, for coming on and talking to us about this. And a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Okay. Um, visit the Page Turner bookstore yep. page on Instagram for to check out their collection and everything. And I'll see you next time. Take care. Will do. Pulp Arcanum is a podcast featuring content and discussions on the pulp fiction genres of 20th century literature. Horror, adventure, fantasy, and sci-fi. The fantastical stories published in the 1920s pulp magazines ignited the era with an explosion of strange and weird tales. To participate in upcoming skull sessions on the podcast, email me directly at pulparcanum at gmail.com. That's P-U-L-P-A-R-C-A-N-U-M. For Facebook, there's a page, Pulp Arcanum Podcast. Also, many paperback collection photos are featured on the Instagram. On the next episode of the Pulp Arcana Podcast, Carnival by Lee Clark.